Hey guys, it's a great day. Back with another great episode of the PFREI Podcast, a passion for real estate investments, where we talk with experts on their personal experience in the real estate business in order to provide the best investment strategies and techniques used by leading fund managers, financiers, SEC attorneys, house flippers, real estate accountants, and more. I'm your host, Bukwam Bilal, and I'm very excited for the next guest of the show. For this episode, I chat with Bill Fairman, a fund manager. He shares his experience in buying his first home at 19 years old and how lenders create an outlet for people to better themselves. He also talks about finding a mentor if you're new in the space, and we talk about his podcast, The Alternative Investor Podcast. Another great episode. I'm excited for you all to hear. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. All right, we're back again with another great episode of PFREI, A Passion for Real Estate Investments. I'm your host, Bukwam Bilal. Thanks again for tuning in. Today, we have Bill Fairman. His sister, Wendy Sweet, is not available, but we're still going to actually have the interview go on. I'm pretty excited. Uh, They're from Carolina Capital Management. Now, Carolina is a hard money lender that specializes in short-term financing options, with a construction component for residential and commercial rehab investors in the Carolinas. Now with over 50 years of combined experience, um, they that started in the mortgage industry space, Wendy Sweet and Bill Fairman launched the Carolina Heart Money Fund in 2012 to afford investors the opportunity to invest in a fund that provides much needed capital and underserved but highly lucrative segment of the real estate market. Now you guys do a lot of uh, lending down in the Carolina, We've seen each other over the years. I've, I've known you guys for, for quite some time now, and I'm, I'm really honored to have you on the podcast. I'm sure the listeners are going to learn a lot today. So I, this is a question that I, that I always you know, ask some of the guests that, that come on, and we'll just get this one out the way is, is basically the title of it. Why are you passionate for real estate investing? I know you got a whole history. We'll jump into that from the truck driving to everything else. <laughs> but let's tackle this first question. All right. Well, that, uh, by the way, thanks for having me. Um, we, we appreciate the, the offer to come on and uh, I'll get into the story of why Wendy is not here with us uh, later on as well. You know, my mom was a real estate broker. Uh, she spent 36 years in the business and she started a little bit later in life, but we grew up listening to her and absorbing what it is she was learning and kind of got the passion there. I bought my first home when I was 19 years old, 1978. Jimmy Carter was president. The FHA rate was 14 and a half percent. So when people, you know, worry about uh, terms on, on mortgages, people still bought homes when interest rates were at 18% interest. Now, Obviously, the prices on those homes were a lot less, <laughs> and I learned a valuable lesson there. I was just out of school. I just started my first job with um, the trade that I had gotten into, which was uh, dental technology. So I was a crown and bridge technician, newly minted, and I was making $98 a week take home. Wow. <laughs> so I qualified for state bond money 
back in that time, because interest rates were so high, they subsidized your interest rate rather than helping you with a down payment. Now the house was only $23,500 is what, what I paid for it. And it was a 1400 square foot, four bedroom, one bath, two story home. And so my interest rate, my actual interest rate was, you know, seven and a quarter. What I learned from that experience is that it was a non-qualifying FHA loan. And the first thing they made me sign was that I have no intention on reselling this house at this time. Mm -hmm. It didn't say I couldn't change my mind a day later. <laughs> it said at this time, I'm going to live in this as my primary residence and I have no intention on reselling this home at this time. I was kind of curious about that document until two weeks later when I was flooded uh, through my mail with investors uh, offering to give me so much money and then to take over my payments because they could have easily turned my home into a duplex and then they would have a seven and a quarter percent interest rate for 30 years on this property. Um, and that's when I learned about real estate investing and, and how you can still make money even in a what most people would have thought was a crappy market. Mm. And it's been with me ever since. Oh, wow. Still the same house. The, or, oh, or no. no, no, no. <laughs> the concept has been with me ever since. I ended up selling that home on a, okay. um, th th that concept. Somebody offered me good money. I took the money and uh, moved on. <laughs> mm. awesome. So they assumed that loan. Now, one of the things I didn't know at the time was that you're still responsible for the mortgage payment, even though uh, it was a non-qualifying loan assumption, if they would have defaulted, it would have been on my credit. Um, those are that's some of the fine print they didn't tell you about back then. So they, they pretty much structured a subject to? Uh, yeah, at the time it, it's a legal uh, loan assumption that FHA had and you did not have to qualify for the mortgage. It's called a non-qualifying uh, loan assumption and you could assume it, but the original uh, borrower was still responsible if that person didn't make the, the mortgage payments. Fortunately for me, he, uh, he made the payments. So, Yeah, that's awesome, man. So through that process and learning that, you became passionate about it and got into the real estate. So, I mean, from there, did you, did you start right off into real estate there? Did you no, have a couple no, I was still young and stupid and uh, didn't have really a, a lot of direction. Uh, it wasn't until I got into my thirties and I got into the mortgage business that it re reignited that. And, you know, I spent, gosh, now it's 30 years in, in the mortgage business. Yeah. I mean, through the mortgage business, I mean, you had the opportunity to see, uh, especially around 99 when the world is FHA market and then transition to a, uh, a subprime market where it was more conventional loans early 2000s, I'm sure as being a mortgage broker, I guess you guys were, you sure. got the opportunity to really, you know, even get a lot of borrowers qualified and, and see the transition in the market, right? Yeah, when I got into the mortgage industry, you either had savings and loans that would make loans, you had um, FHA and VA, and then you had bank loans. So your bank loans, it was 20% down, uh, you know, you had to have really good credit, you know, FHA and, and VA kind of supplemented those folks that couldn't qualify for the 20% down. And then 
in between the savings and loan business got in there and they were in between, uh, I don't want to call them subprime, but they were in between banks and, and FHA. Uh, they still required a little bit more down, but they weren't as stringent on their guidelines. Uh, and at the, you know, at the time the, the rates were still in the 11% range. So, uh, they were coming out with some programs that ended up becoming some subprime programs that ended up crashing the market. <laughs> uh, the, the savings and loans were the first ones that really came out with a negative amortization loans where even though you're only paying 3% interest, they're charging you six. And then they would take that 3% that you weren't paying and they'd add it back onto the principal of the loan. And their, their goal or, their reasoning behind it is that the values of the properties were going up so quick. They assumed that 3% or the values, the appreciation would outrun the 3% that they're adding back onto your principal. Mm. But it, it also allowed you to afford more home. And, and we, we had a, you know, an issue with uh, affordability back then. And then the, on the subprime side of things, you didn't really have subprime. You had finance companies, uh, your commercial credits, your AVCO finance, your associates finance. And these were retail finance companies and they, they specialized in lending to people that paid slowly. They never made loans to people that didn't pay. They made loans to people that paid slowly and their rates were higher than market because they had to work harder to get their payments every month. They had to get on the phones and personally call people and sometimes knock on the door to collect payments and, you know, they were willing to do that because they were, uh, you know, they, they figured in that extra work and in, into the risk of making the loan. Sounds like the, the, now the, uh, common day heart money lender. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Get on the phones, knocking on the doors. Where's that payment? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this. Now you, you went through that transition you uh, had the opportunity to uh, give ho homeowners loans and get and give people an opportunity to own their first home, playing that sure. role as the as the broker. And then the market crashed. And and let's talk a little bit about after that because I know you are like myself, market cycle tested. Uh, there had to be some changes in your life when when there were no more programs available for you to give out? Like what happened? Did you guys continue to go? Did you shift into heart money right then and there? What was the story from that point? Yeah. So the reason I had an aptitude, I think for mortgage, when I went from dental to being in the mortgage business <laughs> was that I did have an aptitude for the, for the money, for the dollars that understood that. But the passion for me was really uh, helping solve problems for people. And that's what I love mostly about the, the business that I could take these numbers and then translate them into the benefits for, for the borrowers. Um, and there were so many programs out there that were available to help people out either to get them into their new home or to be able to, you know, refinance a house, take some cash out, pay their debts down. And again, all you can do as a, as a lender is to provide, the outlet for them to better themselves. You can't pay their bills for them. Some people did, some people didn't. And, you know, they, they, they'd end up languishing. Um, it's a shame that happens, but 
you know, we can't do stuff for them. We can only just show them the way they still have to do it for themselves. And I, I have, it's funny. I have really smart people that I had completely out of debt. And then a few months later, they're saying, yeah, I just bought this, uh, giant RV. We're going to drive around the country. Well, what did you do that for? Well, we're retiring and we thought we'd take advantage. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you still have your house? Yeah. Remember what happened last time? I will be fine this time. So anyway, so what happened when the market crashed? I had been uh, working for a, a large commercial lender at the time. And keeping in mind, I was never a real estate investor while I was working in the mortgage business. I was a worker bee in the mortgage industry, the real estate industry. So when the market took a downturn, it affected the commercial industry uh, last. So by the time it got to our side of things, all the good mortgage jobs had already been uh, gone so to speak, <laughs> we, we, we were now in a position where we only had 25% of the size of the industry that we had just two years earlier. And of course, by the time I, I, I came to me, there weren't any real mortgage jobs left. If I had been an investor through all this, and this is why I'm passionate about what we do now, if I had been an investor and I had passive income coming in, I wouldn't have had to go to uh, commercial driving school at age 50 to get my commercial driver's license so I could drive a tractor trailer to pay the bills. And it, it, hit, it hit me pretty hard. I was completely out of the business. Um, we never lived very extravagantly. So, you know, I'm still able to keep my cars in my house because I didn't, you know, have the, the big fancy cars. I didn't have any payments on those. And my wife had not worked in 13 years and she had to go back to work as well. So it was difficult for her to find work because she had no current experience. And of course, everybody and their brother were, was working, looking for work then too. <laughs> um, but as I'm sitting there in these truck stops with all this uh, mortgage knowledge, I was a pretty bitter pill and trying to figure out how in the heck I can get back into this business, but in a way where I could teach people how not to get into the same boat that I was in. Cause you know, I did the, the normal stuff. I had the nice 401k. The last thing I wanted to do was tap into that. Uh, but the problem there was what happened to the stock market during that time? It, it, it you know, lowered by just about half, right? So, I didn't want to get into my 401k because I didn't want to pay the, the taxes and penalties by taking money out of that. And that was probably the stupidest thing I could have done. If I'd have just taken all that money out, I would have had a lot more than I ended up with when I did have to tap into that thing because it dropped by, by so far. So I decided right then and there, we're going to, we're going to position ourselves where we can benefit those people that can't get loans any longer because the banks weren't lending on certain things. It was really tight. Um, there, there's still a, a good real estate market. You can always find deals in, in real estate, no matter if the real estate is up or down. Uh, you just have to you know, play it properly. And we knew lots of people that had IRAs uh, that were self-directed 
that they were also looking for a, a good return on their money. So we decided that we would get into the business of brokering other people's money with people that needed it to, you know, fix and flip houses. And that, that's how we got started. And that's how it grew from there. Wendy, my partner, uh, she's also my sister. Uh, she, she got out of the, she had to sell her uh, mortgage company. And when I say sell it, she sold some equipment. She had to close it down. <laughs> there was not much of a company to sell. And she ended up going to seminary and, you know, got her, and I, I have to laugh at her. She got her degree in nonprofits and she's failed miserably because uh, she keeps making a profit. So, um, so she had gotten completely out of the business as, as well, but she's got 30 years of real estate uh, brokerage experience as well as she was, you know, in the mortgage business as well. And there was an, a need that uh, needed to be filled and um, it was a great niche for us. Yeah, you guys are the, I believe, second, uh, this is the second interview that I've done with uh, someone who actually does private lending. So let's talk about that a little bit. It's, if someone is in the Carolina and, and they have some experience and they're looking to uh, find financing for a deal, what type of borrower do you guys look for? I mean, you have experience and you, you kind of know what to look for if this person is going to be able to pay the money back. Let's just educate our listeners to when they're presenting deals to private money lenders or hard money lenders, what type of borrower are you guys looking for? How should they present that deal and what are the expectations? Well, that's a great question. And we have changed our model a bit uh, based on what we see as a tightening of the, of the business. So, um, Wendy and I are very passionate about education. We constantly educate people on what it takes to borrow money, uh, what it takes to lend money. If you're an individual and you want to lend money yourself, we're happy to teach people everything we know about that and the pitfalls and what to look for. Um, and, and let me give a plug for Wendy. She actually every Wednesday takes the day and goes to this local French bakery and she spends the entire day, um, an hour at a time with anybody that wants to talk real estate with her. There's a little scheduler she has on her e email and she's booked for the next two months. So uh, she's given back education wise for us. We want to deal with an experienced borrower, someone that has been there. And again, we don't mind teaching people. And if you're not experienced, uh, what we want you to do is get with a mentor because uh, let's say three years ago, even if you weren't experienced, there was enough margin in these fix and flip deals that you could fall into profit, <laughs> even if you weren't experienced. The, the problem now is, uh, you know, it's a tighter market. There's less margin. If you're on, if you're new to uh, fixing and flipping or ground up construction, it's very difficult to purchase at the right price right now. So the margins are a lot skinnier. The people that have been in business for a long time, already have the marketing in place to find those deals. So number two, once you find a mentor, you're, you're going to want to find someone who's a, a wholesaler of properties who has been doing that for a while as well. Uh, a good wholesaler is worth their weight in gold unless you have the time to go knocking on doors and making offers yourself. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean you don't have to do your due diligence on those properties as well, but, uh, the good long-term wholesaler is someone that you need to get with as well. So 
we've expanded outside of the Carolinas with people that we know, like, and trust. So it's not just the Carolinas, but we lend primarily in the Carolinas. What we typically do is uh, we will lend at 70% of whatever the after repair value would be. If you're in this business and you're looking for deals, if you can't get a property that is 70% or under what the after repair value is going to be, don't do the deal. Just walk away. Do not become uh, emotionally attached <laughs> to a house. It's a business deal. There will always be a deal that comes around the corner soon. Don't, don't get impatient and try and do something just because you think you need to do something. Let's, let's clarify that 70%. You're saying 70% construction, holding costs, which can consist of what is it going to cost for a vacant insurance policy? Why are they doing a rehab? What the taxes are going to be? Um, you know, miscellaneous costs. You know, when you put these bills together, do you are these six months terms or one year terms? For they're, typically, they're nine to 12 months. Nine to 12 months. So they should average out holding costs for about 12 months to be well, safe. That that seventy percent should take care of uh, finance charges that you're paying to a lender. It should take care of your insurance and whatnot. That's why you don't want to go over seventy percent because if you go over seventy percent, the margins are just way too thin. Um, you really need to be at sixty five percent to have a good mm -hmm. uh, barrier there. But you know, 70% will work. Again, it's not written in stone. The larger the number of zeros at the end, uh, you know, you're still looking at a really good profit on a high dollar house. You know, the downside to that is, and, and you and I both know this, those markets are softer. If you have a $900,000 house or you're dealing with a $200,000 house, 70% of one or the other is going to pay you a lot more or a lot less. You have a lot less margin to work with on the $200,000 house, but guess what? That $200,000 house, you're going to sell that thing right away because there's more people interested in that. You've got investors that are interested in it. You have people that are downsizing that would be interested in it. You got first time home buyers that are being interested in it. And worst case scenario, if you end up owning it as the lender and you can't sell it, you can still rent it for what your expected return would be. You can't rent a $900,000 house what you think your payments are going to be. The 1% rule never works there. That's right. <laughs> and so they tend to stay on the market a lot longer because you have fewer people that can afford to buy those homes. So yeah. uh, you, you got to be careful. And that's, that's another thing that we've kind of moved towards. We want to stay and, and, and every market is a little bit different. Uh, primarily in the Carolinas, if you're at 300 or less, that's affordable housing. Um, I know, New Jersey is a little bit higher than that. New York is, is higher. California is higher. But in, in our market, 300 or less is a good sweet spot for us. We like to, we like to play in there. And, and I have examples because we own four properties right now that we had to take back. They're beautiful homes. They're between 700000 and 900000 We can't rent those. We can't uh, sell those right away. They will sell. But as a lender... I have to constantly look at how long is it going to take me to get our money back and get it reinvested and working right now. We have a beautiful asset, but it's not making us any money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now, now 
basically do, do the way you guys are set up the investors come to you guys they get money they go and do their rehabs you of course you set these things up like draw payments do you require them to put out the first phase but that's the biggest challenge that i see with a lot of investors especially new in the business right they're going to come up with a percentage down so they can have skin in the game and then most lenders want them to go out and put the first draw up as well and that's what the, that's where they fall short at and run into trouble because they're not able to do it. Let's say if it's a $50,000 renovation and it's, you know, two draws of 25,000 each, most lenders will require them to put out the first 25,000. Then they come to the inspection and go, well, this is not 25,000 worth of work. This is only 15,000. Then they cut a check for a less amount and then they start getting in trouble. So talk about that a little bit, you know, from your point of view, from a lender, what are you guys looking for in that draw and how can they get the full percent of that, of that draw? Do they have to go above that amount to get just that amount of the draw? Because, and that was some of the things that I ran into earlier on. I would put out, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of my money, and the lender will only cut an eighteen thousand dollars check. I'm like, I don't get it. Well, that's the beauty of private lending. You basically, you know, dictate the rules if you're if you're your own lender. Okay, so yes, we require the borrower to to pay the money. We do not give any draws until we have work that's been completed, but it doesn't have to be 25,000. It could be 5,000. Okay. So depending on the, on the deal, uh, we are not stringent. We'd like to only do five draws, but we're not so stringent that we're not flexible. We look at each uh, property individually and you know, you should be able, when we underwrite a deal, we want to see that they have six months worth of, mortgage payments in the bank. And we want to see that they have enough money over and above that to overcome any issues that they may have, because you're always going to run into some issues and it's not a set amount. We look at every deal individually and make a determination how much money they're going to have to have uh, proven in the bank before we'll move forward. So on that first draw, yes, everybody is going to have to get the contractor started. Is it a set amount? No. Um, but does the work have to be completed and does it have to be completed in the right way? I'll give you a quick example. We had, and we love this about a lot of customers. They don't bother us until the thing is halfway completed and they're only looking for draw number one. That tells me they got plenty of money. They're not worried about the draws. They just want to get as much done as quickly as possible, get a draw and then move on to the next uh, phase. Right. Yeah. So uh, it was time for someone to get an inspection. They redid the entire home, new flooring. When our inspector went out there, the, <laughs> the rehabber had, floored the entire house with two by fours and then tried to finish it like a floor. <laughs> um, he said he got a great deal on two by fours, So he was going to use that. Well, obviously <clears throat> he just wasted a bunch of money cause we had to make them rip it all back out and put actual flooring in there. <laughs> so you, you have to kind of, you have to watch it. Um, I, I have all kinds of stories. Um, and by the way, why Wendy isn't here is we had to take a, <clears throat> excuse me, a property back. That house that was existing was going to be scraped and started over again. And it never, 
never got through the, the correct phases and we ended up uh, having to take the property back and they stopped paying. Mm. <clears throat> so the house was boarded up. We are uh, already in plans to just go ahead and knock it down and just sell the lot. And some, a squatter went in there, occupied the property, then called the city code enforcement because it didn't have a CO2 or smoke detector in it. <laughs> so we, so we got a notice from the city that uh, we were in violation of the, uh, you know, the building code for people renting properties. And we said, there's nobody in there. That house is vacant. We're getting ready to tear it down. So she's over there with the building uh, code enforcement folks. She has to, we have to actually get a smoke detector and a CO detector, plug it into the house and then hand them the notice that we're tearing the house down in a week. <laughs> but they're still making us put the smoke detector in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's always something in this business that you'll find where a buddy of mine, he owns a portfolio of college uh, rentals and PA. And he, he always has these issues with the people moving in and squatters when the units are vacant over the summer, people will move in. Right. And, um, you know, before they can rent them, they have mail coming to the house. So technically, you know, they're a resident now and you have to go through the whole eviction process of getting them out. And it's just, it's just been painful. He's losing thousands of dollars. So he's trying to figure out a way of, you know, tell them put alarm system, secure it, you know, do what you have to do. But this is an interesting business. There's one thing that I like about it is that the different facets, whether it's hard money lending, whether it's note buying, whether it's fix and flip rentals, there's always going to be a learning process and they all intertwine in some way. I mean, you're lending money, you, you guys are taking back a property. Now you either have to build it out yourself and sell it, or you have to find another boots in the ground that want to take along that opportunity and you can refine, you can finance it over to them. Now, have you guys in the process of taking properties back? Have you actually finished the renovation, put it on, put the property on the market and been able to cash out and bring that extra profit to the fund? Uh, yes. Um, we, we took back a, a few properties and we finished them out and uh, sold them at a higher amount than what we would have made just being the lender. However, That's awesome. uh, you also, and depending on where you're located, um, th there's some downsides to, to doing that. A as a lender, you, you're typically never going to get sued for slip and fall or negligence or anything like that that has to do with the property. But once you step out of that lending suit and you take possession of a property and then now you're basically contracting somebody else to build the house. And now it doesn't happen here in the Carolinas, but I'll give you an example. In California, uh, there's a, a liability for a builder for 10 years after they build the house. So if you're a lender and you finished out a project that you had to take back, now you're on the hook for 10 years for any um, uh, issue with that house, whether it's uh, negligence or some sort of defect, uh, you're on the hook now as the owner of the property. So, the only way to get around that is to go through a receivership and have a third party handle all that stuff. It costs a little bit more money, but it takes the liabilities off of you. Uh, the other way of doing that is to, when you, if you have to take one back, you know, you can make some, some money on it. You can always sell that note to someone else and let them go ahead and, uh, you know, finish out the project. 
let them do the foreclosing or the deed in lieu and let them finish out the, the project. There, there's so many other ways of doing it. If we had to do it again, I, I'm, we're not wasting our time with finishing these projects up. As much as I like the fix and flip business, I'm in the lending business for a reason. <laughs> and it, it takes your focus off of your main business. Now, if you're an individual that has a self-directed IRA, and you do some fix and flip stuff, and then you lend out your IRA money to other folks, it's okay to do that. It's your money, uh, you have the time to do it, you have the understanding to do it, I, I encourage you to do it. Um, just be careful that you know, you're, you're in a, once you take it back and you're in possession of it, you, you're now wearing a different hat and there's different liabilities involved. Hmm. So let's talk about the fund a little bit and we'll, we'll end on that. So you guys run a fund and mm -hmm. it's accredited investors only, correct? Correct. So in, in that structure, doesn't it, uh, the way your fund is structured, wouldn't it benefit the investor a little bit more if you guys took the property back and sold it at a retail price versus, um, you know, I know there's benefits all the way around with the structure. So let's start off with the structure of your fund first. If you want to let the audience know there's any accredited investors that may catch wave of this that may be interested in participating with you guys. Sure. We're a, we're a lending fund only. So we do short-term loans. They're typically about 95% of them are single family residents that have a construction component. They're either going to be a ground up or they're going to be a, a fix and flip. About 5% of what we do are multi-tenanted commercial. That's going to be in the form of multifamily properties or something like a self-storage, uh, small strip center, that type of thing. Uh, at, we tend to stay away from the strip centers. They need a facelift every 10 years to get retail customers in the door. So uh, they take a little bit more maintenance. Uh, we like small office as well. Anything and warehouse. Anything that has multiple tenants uh, in commercial, we will take a look at because in the commercial business, it takes just like we were talking about the big houses. It takes a lot longer to sell those. If you take them back, uh, same thing with a commercial property. It takes you a lot longer to sell those and get that money back to get it reinvested. But if it's multi-tenanted, then you have a lot of people that are paying rent that at least you're getting money in while it's on the market and while you're trying to sell it. Um, you have to stay in our fund at least 24 months. Uh, after that, there's no restrictions. It's an evergreen fund, meaning it will continue over time. Um, I can't really tell you what the returns are. You'd have to uh, prove you're accredited investor first before I can give you <laughs> those details. Um, and we uh, primarily lend in the Carolinas only. And like I said, we uh, we are we have expanded out to other states, but we're only doing that with people that we've known for a long time. Uh, you and I are in masterminds together. We're in other masterminds as well, and those are the folks that we do business with outside of the Carolinas. Awesome, awesome. So yeah, let's let's talk. Let's if you want to leave some contact information. I know you mentioned earlier that you guys do some some of, some sort of education. I know you have a podcast as well. So if you want to plug that before we sign off, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah, it's called The Alternative Investor. And we interview a lot of fund managers like yourself. Uh, we also, uh, Wendy and I, will just banter back and forth because we love that sibling rivalry. <laughs> but we also talk about business systems and processes and 
anything that's going to be on the personal development side as well. We're really big into always trying to improve life as well as your investing. Um, we are very passionate about helping people have a passive uh, income stream at some point because we've always been told the, the way to save for retirement is to put your money in the stock market. You're, you need to have enough money at the end of a period of time that you can still have this lifestyle and then you must die before that money is finished. <laughs> before you run out, you must go ahead and die first. So we look at it from a different perspective. It's like either owning property or being in a fund that, uh, where you can keep that principle the same and you constantly live off of the principle without having to touch it, right? So you can, you don't have to worry about dying before you run out and you have something that you can pass on to your, your kids or your grandkids. Live off the interest. That's correct. You oh, let your money earn for you instead of you trying to earn your money. So there speak. you go. That's the golden rule. That's right. So uh, you can get to the podcast. It's on iTunes as well, but uh, easiest way to get there is carolinahardmoney.com. It has all the information on investing as well as, uh, being able to get to our, our podcast. And they're a lot of fun to do. That's awesome, man. Well, Bill, I, I thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Another great episode of PFREI, Passion for Real Estate Investments. I'm your host, Fuquan Bilal. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at a passion, the number four REI. Like us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube. Thanks again, Bill. See you around at the next Mastermind session. It's always a pleasure, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Once again, another great episode of PFREI. I want to thank Bill Fairman for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge in the mortgage and real estate space with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow PFREI on Instagram and Twitter at a passion for REI. Send us a DM with any questions that you have and we'll be happy to go over them on the show. Thank you everyone for listening and until next time, it's a great day.